Section 2 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manalakis. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter 2. Her Majesty's Corvette Opal, under all sail, was slowly guiding across the line, for which Dickie Duff and Billy Blueblazes were eagerly looking out, Paddy Desmond having assured them that if they watched fast enough they would be sure to see it. Mr. Mildmay, being addicted to poetry, was busily engaged in writing a sonnet on the subject, which, however, did not corroborate Gerald's statement as it began, Ideal cincture which surrounds the globe. But as he was interrupted by Ben Snatchblock's pipe summoning the crew to exercise at the guns, the second line was not written, when Joss Green caught sight of the manuscript which he had left on the gunroom table. "'I say, Desmond, Dickie and I have been looking out this last hour or more for the line, and haven't sighted it yet,' said Billy. "'Of course not, and you never will on deck. You should go to the foretop gallant mastered. You will see it clearly from thence if you keep your eyes wide open enough.' but if not, you have no chance. But if we do, we shall miss Neptune's visit. I suppose he'll be on board us before long, answered Billy. Of course he will, if he doesn't happen to be otherwise engaged, but he has plenty of work on hand just now, and is just as likely as not paying a visit to some other ship away to the eastward. You see, he can't be everywhere at the same time. Or maybe his children have got the measles or a whooping cough. And of course he wouldn't like to leave them, especially if his wife happens to be out marketing. He's a domestic old fellow, and the best of husbands and fathers. So you youngsters mustn't depend on seeing him, and lucky for you too, for his barber would be after shaving your chins off, seeing you've nothing else round your faces for him to operate on. Paddy, the rogue, knew very well that the commander did not intend to allow the once usual frolics and gambles to take place. The time-honored custom having, of late years, been generally abandoned on board Her Majesty's ships of war, as has the barbarous custom of burning Guy Fawkes been given up on shore by the more enlightened of our times, albeit the 5th of November and the lesson it teaches should never be forgotten. The two midshipmen, who mustered a binocular between them, thus instigated by Paddy, made their way aloft, where, for their own pleasure, they remained looking out for Mr. Mildmay's ideal cincture with the utmost patience though they would have grumbled greatly had they been ordered up for punishment at length they were espied by the first lieutenant what are you two youngsters doing up there aloft he shouted looking for the line sir was the answer in billy's shrill voice then remain till you see it or till i call you down cried adair i say gerald "'You've been after bamboozling those youngsters,' he added, as he caught sight of a broad grin on his nephew's face. "'Go up to the main topgallant master and assist them in looking out for the line. Perhaps you will sight it sooner than they will, and it will help you to correct your day's work.' Gerald, pulling a long face, began to ascend the rigging, greatly to the amusement of Archie and his other messmates. "'I say, Adair, you're somewhat hard upon the youngsters.' "'observed the commander, who had just then come on deck. "'You remember that Rogers and you and I thought ourselves severely dealt with "'when we three had to grace the mastheads of the old racer? "'Faith, but I think we were rightly punished, 
and that's the reason I sent Desmond aloft, and allowed the other youngsters to remain where they had gone of their own accord. <laughs> you forget that the sun is somewhat hot, and they may come down by the run and knock their brains out, so don't you think it would be better to call them down presently, and give Master Gerald a lecture on the impropriety of playing on the credulity of his younger messmates? Of course Adair did as the commander wished, though he had some difficulty in keeping his countenance when he called up the three youngsters before him to receive his lecture. Remember, Master Desmond, if you begin by bamboozling, you may end by practicing more serious deceptions on your fellows. So let me advise you in future to restrain your propensity in that direction, he wound up by saying, with as grave a countenance as he could command. He then informed the youngsters that the line was only imaginary, to denote the sun's course round the globe. "'An ideal cincture you will understand, youngsters,' observed the master, who had heard Adair's remarks, giving at the same time a nod to Mr. Mildmay, who blushed in acknowledgment of being the author of the poetic simile. The two youngsters were very greatly disappointed when they found they had got some way to the south of the line without having made acquaintance with Neptune and his charming family. Rio was at length reached, and Gerald and Archie had time to pay visits, in company with the good-natured master, to many of the localities with which they were acquainted when there before, though unable to get up the harbor, as they wished to call in the officious old magistrate, the Huiz de Fora, who had imprisoned them, and Higson. They remained, however, only long enough to take in a stock of fresh provisions and water, and then steered eastward across the Atlantic, to the Cape of Good Hope. About sixteen days after leaving Rio, land was sighted. "'What, have we got to the Cape already?' exclaimed Desmond, who heard the cry from aloft. "'No, my lad, if you had been attending to a day's work, you wouldn't have asked the question,' answered Green. "'The land ahead is the island of Tristan da Cunha, not the most electable of spots for the residents, though I believe there are some on it. We are going to put in to get some more fresh mutton and beef.' with any vegetables they are able to spare. "'Hand shorten sail and bring ship to an anchor!' shouted Adair soon afterwards, and the corvette brought up before a green slope, spotted with small whitewashed buildings, the hill becoming more rough and craggy till it reached an elevation of 8,000 feet above the sea. The other side of the island, as they afterwards discovered, rose sheer out of the water in a vast precipice to the summit. Between the anchorage and the shore was a prodigious mass of enormous seaweeds, inside of which the water was perfectly calm, forming a safe harbor for small craft. Off it appeared two small islands, known as Inaccessible and Nightingale. To the latter, Billy and Dickie Duff were anxious to go and catch some of the birds, from which, as they were informed by the irrepressible Paddy Desmond, the island took its name. Its feathered inhabitants are, however, only the wild seafowl which seek their prey from among the denizens of the ocean. "'You will not find any friends here, Joss, I suppose,' said Adair to the master. "'It is possible, as I have never been off the place before,' answered Joss. "'But still I am never surprised at meeting someone who knows me. Once, when pulling up the nun in Africa, on the first visit I paid to that delectable stream, as I happened to be remarking that I had no friends there, in all events, a black, who had swum off from the shore, put his head over the bows and exclaimed, "'Master Green, glad to see you. What, sure you remember Jiggery Pop, who served aboard the Frisky at the Cape?' And sure enough, I remember Jiggery well, 
seeing that I had once picked him out of the water when he was near drowning, and he had served me the same good turn. While Joss was narrating this anecdote, a boat, pulled by half a dozen stout seamen in blue and red shirts, was coming off from the shore to the ship. Without ceremony, they stepped on board, when one of them, coming aft, touched his hat to the master. You'll remember me, sir, served with you aboard the pantaloon. I'm Jerry Bird. Glad to see you, Jerry. You saved me from being cut down when we had that affair out in the Pacific. No, sir, I think it was the other way, said Jerry. I haven't forgotten it, I can tell you, sir. Well, it was one or the other, observed Green. Tell me what brought you to this out-of-the-way place. Couldn't help it, sir. Ship cast ashore, and I was the only one to get the land alive, and have been living here ever since. But if so be the captain will ship me aboard, I'll enter at once. As Jerry was a prime hand, the offer was not likely to be refused, and he was entered accordingly. A boat with several officers visited the shore, making their way, not without difficulty, through the floating breakwater of seaweed. The inhabitants, consisting of about forty men, women, and children, gathered on the beach to welcome them in front of their little stone boxes of dwellings which were scattered about here and there. They appeared to be a primitive race, the descendants of two old men-of-war's men, who, having been discharged from the service at the end of the last century, had lived there ever since with wives whom they had brought from the Cape, their respective children and grandchildren having intermarried. Their wealth consisted in bullocks and flocks of sheep, which, having increased in the same proportion as their owners, were now very numerous. Their carcasses, as well as the skins and wool, were exchanged for such luxuries as they required with the skippers of ships calling off their island. Here the old patriarchs, with their families, had dwelt for well-nigh half a century or more, knowing little of what was going forward in the world, and by the world unknown. The opal, having supplied herself with a stock of fresh provisions, once more weighed anchor, carrying off Green's old shipmate, Jerry Bird, who seemed hardly glad to get away from his friends, whom he described in no very flattering colors. After a run of twelve days, the opal came in sight of the Cape, but it was night before she dropped her anchor in Simon's Bay. Dark masses of land were seen towering above her mastheads, and rows of lights streaming from the main deck ports of two frigates, between which she took up her berth, while the sound of bugles coming across the water betokened the neighborhood of troop ships, with redcoats on board, bound out to India, or returning home. It reminded those whose thoughts were with the loved ones in old England to lose no time in sitting down to their desks, of course, the commander wrote to his wife, and Adair humbly requested that he might be allowed to enclose a letter to Lucy, in case, as he observed, she might still be staying with Mrs. Deborah Triton. They both also wrote to the kind old admiral. As the morning broke, a ship was seen standing out of the harbor, and a boat sent with a well-filled letter-bag to overtake her. How hard the crew pulled, for they knew by the commander's manner that he intended that letter-bag to be put on board. They did it, however, as British seamen generally do whatever they are ordered, though at no small expenditure of muscular strength, and, of course, received, well pleased, a glass of grog on their return on board. The opal remained but a short time at the Cape. Murray received orders to follow the Radiant, one of the frigates seen on the night of her arrival, to the Mozambique Channel, as soon as she had filled up with water and other stores. The corvette made but a short stay, and again sailed for St. Augustine's Bay, at the southern end of Madagascar, which island was sighted in little more than a fortnight. 
The Radiant was found at anchor in the bay, Commodore Deuce, who commanded her, having put in to water the ship. Murray went on board to pay its respects and receive his orders, and numerous visits were exchanged between the two ships. The Commodore, a remarkably small man with a fiery countenance, overshadowed by a prodigious cocked hat, was walking the deck with hasty strides as Murray came up the side. "'I have been expecting you here for three days at least, Commander Murray,' he exclaimed as Alec made his bow. "'There is work to be done, and the sooner it is done the better. I have received notice that a piratical band of Arabs, who have long had possession of a strong fort up the river and Goksa, have a number of barracoons full of slaves and several dows lying under the protection of their guns. I have resolved to make a dash up the river to cut out the vessels, capture the slaves, and destroy the fort. I am very glad to hear it, sir, answered Murray, and will send my boats on shore to procure water immediately, so that we may be ready to sail with as little delay as possible. The men, when they hear the object, will work with a will. You may depend on that, Commodore. And I trust that the crew of the Opal is not to be surpassed in smartness by that of any other ship in commission. I think that you will acknowledge that when you have an opportunity of judging. Well, well, you brought to in very good style, I must confess that, answered the Commodore, who, though inclined to be irascible, was quickly appeased. When you send your boats on shore, let the officers in command keep an eye on the natives, and take care that none of the crew stray. The people about here are treacherous rascals, and would murder anyone they could catch hold of without any provocation. I'll send three of the frigate's boats to assist you, and order the crew of one of them to remain on guard while the others are filling the casks. The news which Murray took when he returned on board made everyone alive. In a few minutes the boats were ready to shove off. The brown-skinned natives kept hovering about all the time, seeing the sailors engaged in filling the casks, and it was very evident that, had they dared, they would have treated their visitors as the Commodore had thought probable. Not long before, in the bay, a short distance to the northward, the inhabitants had murdered an officer and boat's crew without, as far as could be ascertained, the slightest provocation. Murray was therefore thankful when his boats returned safely on board. Leaving St. Augustine's Bay, the frigate and corvette sailed across the Mozambique Channel and came to an anchor off the mouth of the Ngoxa. During the passage, every possible preparation was made for the intended expedition. The firearms were looked to, cutlasses sharpened, the surgeons packed up their instruments, bandages, and medicines. The Arabs were not fellows to yield without a determined struggle, and some sharp fighting was expected. About midway across the channel, a thin wreath of smoke was observed to the southward. "'A steamer in sight, standing this way, sir,' reported Adair to the commander. "'The Commodore has made the signal to heave to.' In a short time the steamer got near enough to allow her number to be made out. "'The busy bee,' reported Archie, who was acting as signal midshipman. The Commodore directed her to join company. Her boats would be an important addition to the proposed expedition." The three vessels now stood on the mouth of the river, off which they brought up, for the depth of water on the bar was not sufficient to allow even the busy bee to enter. The boats were therefore immediately lowered, those considering themselves most fortunate who had to go in them, and it was hoped that by pulling up at once the Arabs might be taken by surprise. The frigate sent four boats, the corvette three, and the steamer two of her paddle-box boats and a gig. The larger boats were armed with guns in their bows capable of carrying shell, grape, and canister, as well as round shot. The crews were provided with muskets, 
pistols, and cutlasses, and all formed a pretty strong body, against which the Arabs were not likely to make any effectual stand. All hands were in high spirits. There is nothing Jack enjoys so much as an expedition on shore, whether for fighting or for a game of cricket. Provisions for three days were stowed away in the boats, with plenty of ammunition and numerous articles, including pots and pans for cooking, blanket frocks and trousers, blankets and other means for making themselves comfortable at night. The surgeons did not forget a supply of quinine to mix with the men's grog, the only way in which they could be induced to swallow the extract, albeit the only reliable preventive for fever. Joss Green was much disappointed at being compelled to remain in charge of the corvette. I fully expected to find some old friend or other among the Arabs or captured slaves. However, give my kind regards to anyone who knows me, and say I shall be happy to see them on board, he exclaimed as Terence went down the side. Murray went in his gig, accompanied by Archie. Adair had commanded the pinnace, a mate and Desmond going with him. Mr. Mildmay commanded the cutter, accompanied by Billy Blueblazes, and Dickie Duff was in the boatswain's boat. The Commodore led the expedition in his own gig, in the stem of which sat, as coxswain, Tom Bashan, noted as the biggest man in the fleet. Even the carpenter of the Opal looked but of ordinary size alongside him. He had followed Captain Deuce from ship to ship, and had often rendered his commander essential service, when the little man might otherwise have come to serious grief. Bashan had the affection for his chief which a nurse entertains for the child under her charge, and considered it his especial duty, as far as he had power, to keep him out of harm. Not that the Commodore ever suspected that his subordinate entertained such a notion. He always spoke of him as an honest, harmless fellow, who knew his duty and did it. The bar being tolerably smooth, the boats crossed without any accident, the crews giving way with a will up the river. The tide was flowing, so they made rapid progress. This is something like our expedition up the San Juan de Nicaragua, observed Desmond to Adair, except that we had white fellows to fight instead of Arabs, and a hot stream to pull against instead of having the tide with us. The tide will turn before long, answered Adair, and if the boats get aground we may find these same Arabs rather tough customers. However, we must look out to avoid the contingency, and if we can take the fellows by surprise, we may manage to get hold of a good number of slaves. The tide, before long, as Adair predicted, began to ebb, and the boats made much slower progress than before. It was nearly nightfall when they got up to Monkey Island, inside of which the Commodore ordered them to anchor, the boats being brought up close together, the awnings were spread, the main brace spliced, and other preparations made for passing the night. An extra allowance was served out to induce the men to swallow the quinine mixed with it, for though some made wry faces, their love of grog induced them to overcome their objection to the bitter taste. After the grog, songs were sung alternately by the crew of each boat, the Commodore, who had nothing of the martinet about him, being always ready to encourage his men to amuse themselves harmlessly, and they were yet too far off from the fort to run any risk of their approach being betrayed by their voices. "'Sweethearts and wives!' sung out a voice from one of the boats, and was taken up by the rest, as the last drop of grog was drained. Murray and Adair drank the toast heartily, though in a less demonstrative manner than their companions, who possibly might have been very little troubled with the thoughts of either wives or sweethearts. No one for the time dwelt on the somewhat serious work on which they were likely to be engaged the next day. At length each man looked out for the softest plank he could find, and turned into sleep, 
the officers enjoying no more luxurious couches than their inferiors. To some poor fellows it might be the last rest they were to take here below. A lookout, however, was kept, in case any of the Arab dows should slip down the river. Two of the gigs were sent alternately ahead to watch for any craft which might come in sight. None, however, were seen, and just as the first streaks of daylight appeared in the sky, the Commodore gave the order to pipe to breakfast. Fires were lighted on the island, and cocoa and coffee warmed up, while another dose of quinine was served out to each man. The operation did not take long, and once more the flotilla advanced, the tide carrying them rapidly up the river. About noon, as the sun was beating down with tremendous force, and Goksa came in sight, with, as the Commodore had expected from the information he had received, several dows at anchor before it under the protection of its guns. Directly the boats rounded the last point, which had before concealed their approach. The red flag was hoisted above the fort, and at the same time the loud sounds of the beating of tom-toms and drums commenced, continuing incessantly as if to intimidate the English tars and induce them to pull back again to their ships. The men laughed. What a row them niggers do kick up. I wonder whether they think we're going back frightened by all their tom-tomming. We'll show them presently that we've got some chaps aboard which will bark down a little louder and do a precious deal more harm, exclaimed Ben Snatchblock, who accompanied Mr. Mildmay in one of the Opal's boats. That young officer took things very coolly. He was observed with his notebook jotting down his thoughts, but whether in the form of a poetical effusion or not, Billy Blueblazes, who was beside him, could not ascertain, though he tried hard to do so. The great wolf recited poetry when about to die, in the arms of victory on the heights of Abraham, observed Mr. Mildmay to the midshipman. Do you recall the lines to your memory, Billy? What were they? I think, sir, there was something about the curfew tolling the knell of parting day, but I can never recollect more of the poem. Ah, so they were. Uh, let me see. And the lieutenant bit the end of his pencil. As Britain's tars who plough the mighty deep, Sheep or sleep come and rhyme with deep, suggested Billy. Be silent. I want a grander term, said the lieutenant. Where waves on waves in wild confusion leap. That's fine, isn't it? Yes, sir, said Billy. We're up an African river and are going to lick a lot of blackamoors. You'll have a difficulty in bringing blackamoors into your lines, I've a notion. Of course, I should call them Arabs, their proper designation when I get as far replied Mr. Mildmay. Just then the boat grounded, as did several others near her, and there the whole flotilla lay in sight of the fort, outside of which appeared a number of barracoons, but whether full of slaves or not it was impossible to say. The unavoidable delay of the leading boats enabled the others to overtake them, and as the tide rose, their crews shoved them over the shoals, and once more they advanced in line abreast. Their progress was slow, again several of the larger boats grounded, and the whole consequently had to wait till the rising tide floated them. The next time they grounded, the Arabs seemed to have discovered that they were within range of the eight guns mounted on the fort, as well indeed as the muskets of the large party sent out along the bank. The latter, as well as the guns in the fort, now began blazing away, shot and bullets flying thickly over and around the boats. Mr. Mildmay at this juncture thought it as well to put his notebook into his pocket. The boat's guns, however, were not to be idle. The commander gave the order to fire, and immediately they opened with spherical case shot, grape, and canister, 
the former thrown with great accuracy into the middle of the fort, while the latter quickly sent some of the swarthy heroes under shelter, and put the greater number to flight. Several of the men on the boats had been hit, which excited the eagerness of the crews to get at the foe. The first thing, however, to be done was to destroy the dows. As the boats worked their way up over the shoals towards them, a hot fire was opened from those lowest down. This was quite sufficient to show their character, and the marines and small-armed men began peppering away at every Arab turban or cap of which they could catch sight, while the shells and grape prevented the enemy from returning to their guns in the fort. The tide, rushing in more rapidly than before, quickly enabled the smaller boats, led by Adair, to get up to the dows. He was the first on board the largest, a craft of a hundred tons or more. Her crew, having had no time to escape, fought desperately. Some were cut down, and the rest driven overboard, not a human being remaining alive on board. She was at once set on fire, and the rest of the dows were attacked in the same manner in succession. On board, some resistance was offered but the crews of others, leaping overboard, attempted to save themselves by swimming to the shore. As there was no object in carrying any of them off, they were all burned, there being no doubt of their piratical character. Though the guns in the fort were for the time silenced, they were still capable of mischief, and the Commodore wisely resolved entirely to destroy the hornet's nest. We must land, Commander Murray, and drive the enemy into the woods, burn the stockade, spike the guns, and tumble them into the river, he shouted. The first part of the business, on which the rest depended, was not so easily accomplished. The banks shelved so gradually that the boats grounded when still some twenty yards or more from the shore. The rising of the tide would in time carry them nearer, but in the interval they were exposed to a galling fire from the enemy who were under shelter both in the fort and in several other spots along the bank. While in all probability before the fighting on shore was over, the tide would again ebb and leave the boats high and dry, exposed to the attacks of the numerous bands who were gathering on the spot in the hope of wreaking their vengeance on their foes. Still, the plucky little Commodore, in spite of all risks, was determined to carry his plan into execution. The commanders of the boats received orders to sweep round in line, run their bows as far up as they could, and while the enemy were driven from the banks by showers of grape and canister, the marines and small-armed men were to land and attack them with the bayonet should they attempt to make a stand. The order was quickly obeyed. The guns from the larger boats sent forth so deadly a shower of missiles that the Arabs, who were coming down in force to dispute their landing, took the flight, leaving many dead and wounded. The difficulty was now to get on shore. The bottom was likely to be muddy, the water tolerably deep. Murray and Adair, with their boat's crews, were among the first to gain a footing on dry land. The Commodore was eager to be up with them, but at the same time was very unwilling to get wet. Tom Bashan, having stepped out into the mud, received orders from his chief to lift him on his shoulders and carry him on shore. Tom, who had his musket in his right hand, did as he was ordered by taking the little Commodore up with his left arm and placing him behind his back, where the brave leader of the expedition sat, his head just above Tom's grinning countenance, while he waved his sword with no little risk of cutting off his coxswain's nose, shouting in his eagerness, On, my lads, on, form on the beach as you land. Skirmishers to the front. Now let the brown-skinned rascal see what British sailors are made of. The Marines, who had landed by the time the Commodore had been deposited by Tom on the ground, formed in good order, with parties of blue jackets on either flank. The Arabs appeared to be taken completely by surprise. 
never apparently supposing that the British would leave their boats. They had halted at some distance and looked a formidable body, ten times more numerous than those who were about to attack them, while the Commodore, nothing daunted, waving his sword and dashing forward, shouted, Charge, my lads! Charge! The British bayonets gleamed brightly in the sun as, with steady tramp, the line of red coats and blue jackets advanced at the charge. The Arabs fired around, the scimitars of their leaders flashing for a few seconds, and then, unable to face the bristling wall of bayonets, their courage gave way, and they fled, helter-skelter for safety, towards the neighboring woods. The English pursued them for some distance, firing as they advanced, and halting only to give sufficient time to reload. If they advanced too far, as the fort was yet unsubdued, there was a risk of a sally being made from it, and the boats being destroyed. The Commodore, carried away by his ardor, had already gone farther than was wise. Discovering his error, he ordered his followers to fall back as rapidly as possible on the boats. Just then a strong body of men were seen issuing from the fort. Not a moment was to be lost, or they might reach the boats. The Commodore was pretty well blown by his recent exercise, but, putting forth all his strength, he led his men back even faster than they had come. As soon as the enemy saw their approach, they hastily retreated within the stockades. "'Now, my lads,' cried the Commodore, "'we have the last part of the business to accomplish. Before a quarter of an hour is over, we must be inside that fort. I know that you can do it, and will do it.' The men replied by a loud cheer and advanced, in high spirits at their previous success, towards the stockades. The Arabs, who had seen their friends beaten, lost heart from the first and though they defended the stockades for some minutes with considerable bravery, they quickly took to flight as the blue jackets came tumbling down over their heads, cutlass in hand. In a few minutes the place was won, the garrison escaping by a western gate, as the English forced their way in over the eastern side. The Commodore's first impulse was to follow the enemy, but there were still too many people in the fort to make such a proceeding safe. The non-combatants, women and children, received orders to take themselves off with such of their personal property as they could carry, an act of leniency which surprised them not a little. In a short time not a single inhabitant remained behind. The guns were then spiked and dragged to a part of the fort directly over the stream, into which they were tumbled, and from whence it would give the Arabs no small amount of trouble to fish them out again. The place was next set on fire in every direction. When the party, each man carrying such booty as he had managed to pick up, left the fort to the destruction awaiting it. The flames spread amid the wooden and thatch-roof buildings till the surrounding stockades caught fire, and the whole hornet's nest was one sea of flame. The barracoons, from which the slaves had, as it was expected, been removed, were treated in the same manner, when the Commodore, highly satisfied with the result of the expedition, ordered the men to embark. To get the heavy boats afloat, however, was no easy matter. The tide had already begun to ebb. It seemed very doubtful whether they could be got off, till the crews, putting their shoulders under the gunwales, lifted them by sheer strength into deeper water. Before a single man attempted to get on board, the gallant Commodore, who, though not afraid of the hottest fire, had an especial dread of getting wet, was again carried for some distance on Bashan's shoulders till he was safely deposited in the stern-sheets of his boat, where the giant, with dripping clothes, followed him. Further delay would have been dangerous, as, the channel being unknown, the boats might at any moment get aground, and be left there by the rapidly falling tide. 
it was besides important for the sake of the wounded men to return as soon as possible to the ships although not a man had been hit on shore either when attacking the enemy in the open or storming the fort during the first part of the day several casualties had occurred two poor fellows had been killed and six others had been wounded one very severely excepting however on board the boat in which the dead bodies lay the men were in as high spirits as usual exulting in the success of the expedition now and then they restrained their mirth as first one and then another of the boats grounded and there seemed a probability that the rest would share their fate they however were got off and the flotilla continued its course down the stream one boat following the other in line they reached their anchorage inside monkey island soon after darkness came on though the water was here of sufficient depth even at low tide to allow the boats to keep afloat and the dows having been destroyed they could not be assailed from above still their dangers and difficulties were not over for should their position be discovered a force might gather on the banks and cause them considerable annoyance during the night therefore the men were ordered to keep their arms by their sides ready for instant use it being impossible to say at what moment they might be attacked the bar also had to be crossed it was sufficiently smooth when they came over it but how it would be on their return was the question those who had before been on the coast declared that they had frequently seen a surf breaking over it in which even a lifeboat could scarcely live faith archie we've had a jolly day of it remarked desmond whose boat was lying alongside that of the commander of the opal if this is the sort of fun we're generally to have i'm mighty glad we came out here small fun for the poor fellows who have been shot answered archie i hear one of them groaning terribly the sooner we get back to the ships the better for them faith it isn't pleasant to have a shot through one and i hope that won't be our lot said desmond i only wish tom rogers was with us from what i hear the boats of the squadron are constantly sent away on separate cruises to look after slavers and it would be capital if we could get sent off on a cruise together much more amusing than having to stick on board the ship with the humdrum everyday routine of watches and musters and divisions to this of course archie agreed the youngsters forgetting that their commander was close to them were chattering away in somewhat loud voices when murray ordered them to knock off talking and to turn in and go to sleep the night passed away quietly and all hoped to get on board their respective ships at an early hour the next morning after the men had breakfasted on the island the squadron of boats led by their gallant commodore pulled down with the ebb towards the mouth of the river up which a stiffish breeze was blowing just sufficient to ripple over the surface of the water glittering in the rays of the rising sun on either hand rose a forest of tall trees their feathery tops defined against the clear blue sky in a short time the ships could be discerned in the offing rolling their masts ominously from side to side while ahead rose a threatening wall of white foam extending directly across the river's mouth the crew of the commodore's boat ceased pulling and the other boats as they came up followed their example here we are caught like mice in a trap gentlemen exclaimed adair as murray and the commander of the busy bee came up alongside him it will be madness to attempt forcing the boats through yonder breakers the largest would be swamped directly she got among them observed murray it's now nearly low tide but perhaps at the top of the high water they may prove less formidable and we may be able to get out we shall at all events have to wait till then as the boats during this conversation had been carried somewhat close to the dangerous breakers 
the commodore ordered them to pull round and to make their way some little distance up the river where the men could lie on their oars and wait for an opportunity of crossing the bar many an eye was turned towards the shore where a game of leapfrog or some other amusement could be indulged in but not a spot appeared on which they could land the sun rose higher and higher in the sky his rays beating down on their heads and blistering their noses and cheeks while the stock of water and other liquids which had been brought rapidly diminished i hope that we will be able to get out when the tide rises said desmond to adair if not i have a notion that we shall be pretty hard pressed so have i said adair but it is possible that the bar may remain in its present state for several days together and if so we shall have to forage on shore for whatever food we can pick up it may not be so easy to find pure water though for my part i should be ready to drink ditch water exclaimed desmond i never felt so thirsty in my life many others were in the same condition as paddy but no one complained a small quantity only remained which was willingly given up for the use of the poor wounded men who of course suffered greatly hour after hour passed by and anxious eyes were cast at the white wall of surf which cut them off from the blue ocean beyond its summit dancing and leaping glittered brightly in the sun's rays at length the tide rising the breakers appeared to decrease somewhat in height i think sir that i could carry my gig through said murray and if so the heavier boats may be able to follow you may make the attempt provided all your people can swim for your boat may be swamped said the commodore but as the tide is rising you will be drifted back and we must be ready to pick you up all my boat's crew are good swimmers said murray but i hope they will not be compelled to exercise their powers murray having placed the remainder of the stores with all unnecessary weight on board the larger boats prepared to make the bold attempt adair and snatchblock following him as close as they could venture to the inner line of breakers standing up and surveying the bar for some minutes he at length selected a part where the rollers which came in from the ocean appeared to break with less violence than on either hand give way my lads he cried suddenly and the crew bending to their oars the boat shot quickly up the foaming side of the first of the formidable watery hills which had to be passed before the open sea could be gained his progress was watched with intense eagerness by those in the other boats now she was lost to sight as she sank into a valley on the farther side of the inner roller now she rose to the foaming summit of the next he'll do it cried the little commodore standing up in the stern sheets that he might the better watch the progress of the young commodore's boat and clapping his hands like a midshipman the more dangerous part of the bar however had not yet been reached still murray continued his course now the summit of another roller was gained the white foam hissing and sparkling over the boat and almost concealing her from sight she's capsized after all and they'll have a hard swim of it shouted someone no she isn't cried another voice i see her bows rising up on the outer roller in another minute she'll be clear of them bravo well done exclaimed the commodore dancing with delight she's through it and we'll soon be on board the busy bee the officer in charge of the steamer it should be said not finding the boats at the time expected had according to orders got up steam and stood in to ascertain what had become of them now my lads cried the commodore what the gig has done we can do i'll bring up the rear and be ready to help any boat which may meet with an accident the post of most danger is the post of honor 
which I claim for myself, for those in the last boat will have less chance of being rescued than any of the rest. Adair was the next to attempt the hazardous experiment. His boat was half filled, but he got through without being swamped, and the water was bailed out. The rest in succession followed, each officer waiting for a favorable opportunity to steer through the line of surf. End of section two.